Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing. A great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. Apocalypse Sports Radio, episode number three. Can you believe it? I certainly can. One and two came before, only logical that three should follow. My opinion only. Okay, well, we have got a great one for you today. So many different features, so much fun. We've got Brandon Gardner here to talk about the Michael Jordan documentary. Miles Cottom is on hand to talk horses. And of course, Spike's Takes, everybody's favorite. But first and foremost, a quick spiel about the Apocalypse Sports Network. You're listening to it right now. It is two podcasts each week, five blog posts each week, Great humor, great analysis, great anything else you like, and I do mean anything. And it's all for just $3 a month. What a great way to support me, your favorite person. You can go to patreon.com slash apocalypsesports to subscribe, and you can see all the free content at apocalypsesports.net, along with tantalizing glimpses of the locked content. Oh, my, oh, I can resist anything except temptation. That was Oscar Wilde who said that. And it's a very human impulse that I hope to use against you. So, ApocalypseSports.net, go there, check it out, become a subscriber, I will love you forever. All right, let's get this party started. Segment break! All right, first order of business on Tuesdays, as always, is Apocalypse Sports Trivia. Last week in episode one, I asked the following question. In the 1904 Summer Olympic Games in St. Louis... A retired cricket professional named George Lyon won a gold medal as one of just three Canadians competing in an event that included 71 Americans. No other nations participated. Who was the next man to win an Olympic gold medal in Lyon's event? Well, off the cuff, that probably seemed pretty tough. How on earth are you supposed to know who won the next time after 1904? But one person did know. That was loyal listener Jack Purdy correctly ascertained that the sport was golf it was immediately canceled, abolished after the 1904 games and only reinstituted in 2016 down in Brazil. And the next man to win a gold medal in that event was Justin Rose. So well done, Jack Purdy. Um, you win the biggest prize we can possibly give, which is recognition. So bathe in that as long as you can. Uh, and who knows, maybe you'll get this next one too, because we are ready for our second trivia question. This one, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you the category. I'm just going to read the question. And if you know it, get in touch. Shane Ryan here on Twitter. And uh, again, we will shout you out. You will go down in history. Everybody will be happy. So here's the second question. In season eight, episode nine of Curb Your Enthusiasm, a burning apartment building forces a woman to throw her baby from a high window to firemen holding a jumping sheet below. When the baby bounces off the sheet and seems to be heading for the pavement, who makes the diving redemptive catch? 
All right, again, if you know that one, Shane Ryan here on Twitter. And hey, these questions all come from the Apocalypse Sports Trivia League. There are now 120 people in it. It's free, and uh, it takes place each season, each fortnight over uh, two weeks. So if you're interested in that, get in touch with me also. You can join. Absolutely no obligation. And if you like sports trivia, um, you're going to have a good time with that. All right, so shoot that answer to me, and now we move on. Segment break. If you were listening last week, you know the deal with this next feature. It's called Spike's Takes. Uh, we feature Spike Friedman, who once a week comes on the podcast and just gives a take, you know, something he believes strongly in in the world of sports. Now, normally, I wouldn't let a guy like Spike on here. Some of the takes are offensive. Some of them are really out there. They're always a little weird, and, uh, you know, they make a lot of people uncomfortable. However, Spike decided that he was going to forego the $3 a month asking price for Apocalypse Sports Network and donate $6,000 a month, which is incredibly generous. Um, you know, he's very, very wealthy, so I don't think it puts a big dent in him. But, you know, as part of that, uh, as part of that donation, he said, I want to come on and I want to just sort of spout off. Those were his words, spout off. So, so I said, fine, you know, I, I really can't say no. Uh, in the first week, he told us that he was sick of these kind of human interest stories in the NFL draft about the players. And he wanted to know more about the struggles of some of the owners, like the ones who, you know, had to move their team to Canada because people in Buffalo are too poor, things like that. Uh, you know, we got a lot of letters about that. I completely understand your concerns. I've talked to Spike and I think you, uh, this, we're going to get, it's going to get better, you know, over time, but I, I can't turn him away, frankly, folks. I don't know what else to tell you. So coming to us once again from his yacht, uh, this is Spike Friedman. All right, Spike, how are you? Doing okay, Shane. Doing okay. Back on American soil, so that's always good. Off the yacht? Uh, well, uh, I, I, I'm dry docked in Guam right now. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it's not ideal, but it turns out if you uh, drink a very specific blend of vinegars, you can just piss right through the hull of a yacht. Who knew? That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's new for me. Yeah. Uh, Shane, it's good to talk sports, though. You know what I mean? We need a distraction in these hard times. That's Don't you feel that? I completely feel that. Yeah. And I, uh, of course, always looking forward to your take. Yeah. Well, and for me, my take, yeah, I should I should say I'm getting divorced now, too. Oof. I'm sorry to hear yeah. that. But uh, don't apologize to me because I don't have any kids. Uh, my take of the day is the most divorced divorce has just gone down by another man back on American soil. Of course, I'm talking about Jay Cutler. Mm. No one has ever gotten as divorced as Jay Cutler. And the reason why is not because of his whole vibe, which has been guy who's going to get divorced forever. <laughs> yeah. But it's the name of his three children. Jay Cutler's got three kids. And, and, and look, I'm a product of divorce. Shane, I'm sure you're a product of divorce based on your various failings. Am I right or wrong Absolutely on that? Absolutely true. Yes. <laughs> yep, nailed it. Nailed it. Got, got it in one. So <laughs> so we know what it's like. As, as people who maybe have some moral failings because our parents couldn't stay together. <laughs> for, for Jay and Chris Sting. And, and look, you know, Jay was a great quarterback. We can all agree, just a legendary quarterback. For me, a first ballot Hall of Famer. One of the best, absolutely. One of the absolute greats. His children are named Camden Jack, 
Cutler, Jackson Wyatt Cutler, and Sailor James Cutler. Oof. Is that last one real, Sailor James? Sailor James Cutler. Goodness. So imagine being named a Sailor James Cutler <laughs> yeah. and having to go to child therapy with your siblings i don't even know what genders and they get to choose what gender look as an extremely wealthy <laughs> yacht owner i would never prescribe someone's gender it's really important to me. it's nice to hear that but, after some of the some of the stuff you were saying last time getting angry uh when nfl draftees had their stories told about hardships they'd gone through i like to hear that when it comes to gender that is something that yeah you are you're a little more permissive on that well, I, I just want to be clear that gender cuts across all class. Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, so, yes. So I can relate to someone who's very wealthy being struggling with their gender conformity. That, for me, is relatable. Of course. So that's important. So, But I'm just saying, picture Sailor James Cutler in group child therapy with their siblings, Camden Jack Cutler and Jackson Wyatt Cutler, <laughs> talking about how Jay Cutler, their father is emotionally distant. There has never been a more divorced moment in the history of the institution of divorce, <laughs> the sacred institution of divorce, than Sailor James Cutler, who I believe is very young. I'm going to get the age of Sailor James Cutler here. I, I've got, I, I mean, you're hearing me on the satellite relay. Oh, sure, yeah. Now, if there's any internet problems, it's because Spike is on his yacht. He's really had to hook up a lot of stuff just to do this. But, Spike, I am curious. Is Sailor James Cutler a boy or girl? Uh, it's looking like birth gender is girl four and a half years old. Okay, yeah, young four and a half year old girl. Yeah. To have no idea what's going on. Looking <laughs> up to their to their siblings again. I have no idea what what is Jackson Wyatt Cutler. I don't know. I don't care. Oh yeah, I mean, but I would think a boy. I would think the other two are boys, but I don't know. You th you think Camden is a boy? Camden and Jackson. I've known a lot of Camden and Jackson boys. I don't know that I've known. Uh, actually, no, but you're right. Camden does sound like it could go either way. I don't know. Jackson is it's Jackson with an X though. That's got to be a boy. Is it? Or I don't know, it's just my guess. I have no idea. Okay, so Sailor's looking up to her two brothers in group divorce therapy, talking about what Jay's Jay giving me enough love. He's not giving me enough attention. You think she calls her dad know? by his first name? Yes. <laughs> Who, what else would she call Jay Cutler? That's true. It's true. Papa? Papa Cutler? Papa Cutler. Daddy Cutler? <laughs> I hope not daddy, because that would lead to so many other issues. Sailor James Cutler calls Jay Cutler Daddy Jay. <laughs> what I'm saying is divorce is sacred. It's a sacred institution, and no one's ever been more divorced than Jay. And as someone who's going through that myself, and, and let me tell you, it is a real pain in the tuchus that I'm stuck on American soil right now, godforsaken American so you you want to get divorced on international waters you want to file those papers you just put them in a filing cabinet that's it you're on a divorce <laughs> any filing cabinet that's the law of the sea when you're in America I got huh. let's just say I'm going to be going back to international waters so you can file that divorce more easily well I'm going to have to do something yeah so, so to just to recap, Spike, this is Jay Cutler's divorce with his kids named Sailor and Camden and Jackson. That is the epitome of divorce. It is the highest divorce that has ever 
in your opinion, perfect. This is- it is to me the perfect divorce because you can just picture Jay getting those three kids, you know, every other Friday, every third Wednesday for dinner at Ruth Chris, you know, <laughs> Friday. It's it, it's he's taking them to the arcade. He's taking the mini golfing. You know, he's yeah. doing it. He's yeah. putting in the work. Is he there with an escort? Yes. Is that escort's name? I don't know. He doesn't know. Kids don't get to know. It's a different escort every week. That is the perfect divorce. And for me, it really just gets to Jay Cutler's uh, Hall of Fame legacy. Um, Last thing, would would you consider him a hero of yours? Oh, personally? I mean, well, yeah, I've met Jay a couple times. And here's the thing is when you meet Jay Cutler, what comes off first is the charm. Just the radiant charm <laughs> yeah. of Jay Cutler. You just get in a room with him and it just feels like fireworks exploding. Because it's just like, that's a man's man. Yeah, yeah. You know, father, a divorcee. He was always, I just, I just love him so much. Well, I don't want to shortchange you, Spike. Is there anything you want to say before we go here? You've opened up your wallet very generously. I want to make sure you get the entire take uh, out there. Yeah, uh, I'm just going to recommend that uh, you watch The Last Dance, which is a YouTube that I posted of myself and my wife dancing (laughs) one last time on the bow of our yacht. Uh, And don't go looking for her. Don't do that. I was going to say, what, what happens when the video ends? Don't you don't don't it just I it's 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 the language of cinema, you know, it's just hard cut out. <laughs> Spike, thank you very much as usual. Segment break Welcome to Horse Sense with Miles Cotta. Miles, how are you today? I'm doing well, Shane. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really good. So I wanted to talk to you. Oh, first of all, folks may remember Miles from episode one where he talked about the NFL draft. Very knowledgeable on that subject, but perhaps even more or equally as knowledgeable, at least on horses. And what's really interesting about horses, Miles, is we still have horse racing uh, to gamble on. What, What is the story there? Sure. So, you know, right now, horse racing is the only game in town. It's the only sport that's still running. Uh, in the United States, uh, you know, there's only a couple of major tracks running. You've got Oaklawn Park in Arkansas and Gulfstream Park in Florida. There are a couple of smaller parks. Will Rogers Downs in Oklahoma is still running. Um, but, you know, Fauner Park in Nebraska, that's a new one to everybody. Uh, but, the, you know, they've got some <laughs> horses right now. But uh, generally speaking, you know, it's one of those things where some of the states that have, have stayed open – Uh, have kept the racing going. And at first glance, you think, well, you know, are they being reckless? What's going on here? But what it is, is you've got these animals, these horses stable at these racetracks. And you've got to have so many people on the grounds every day to take care of them anyway. And so if you're running it without fans, without folks there on track betting, without all the, uh, you know, pop and circumstance that goes along with being at a, a major horse track, you're really not adding in a whole bunch of extra people when you're just running these races day to day. And so most of the jockeys uh, at these two major tracks, Oaklawn and Gulfstream, they're staying there. They're not going back and forth like they would sometimes do, uh, you know, following trainers or, or picking out the bigger races. They've all been kind of in the same area. It's the same folks at the track every day. And so they're really able to keep running right now 
in the midst of all this COVID-19 uh, lockdowns, you know, stay at home orders and things of that nature. All right, this is Horsing Around with Miles Cottom. Miles, uh, are they taking any kind of flack for this? I, I know, obviously, the Triple Crown races are at least postponed at the moment, right? The Kentucky Derby, they're saying it may be in the fall or something like that. Um, how are these these tracks, like Gulfstream and the other ones, uh, how's the PR going for them? Sure. I, you know, I think from one perspective, they're the only game in town, and so folks are focusing on them a lot more than they normally would. Uh, coming up this weekend, you know, Saturday – uh, May 2nd is the Arkansas Derby. And obviously the first Saturday, first Saturday in May is usually reserved for the Kentucky Derby. Right. Uh, but given now that the Kentucky Derby has been rescheduled for the first Saturday in September, you've got, you've still got to get these horses into the race. You've got to get them qualified. You've got to get these major races done. And so Arkansas has been running their meet, um, both Arkansas or both, um, Oaklawn in Arkansas and Gulfstream in Florida were already running their meets when the shutdowns started to occur. And so basically what they did was they, they had everybody stay there. And, um, you know, I won't say it's a shelter in place necessarily because I think these folks are going home and whatnot, but they were all at the same places. And so they kept running these meets. Uh, Saturday is supposed to be, I believe, the last day on Oaklawn's card. And so um, we're, we're going to get the biggest race uh, of the Derby prep cycle thus far, the 100-point Arkansas Derby, which we'll actually have two different divisions of. Um, you know, and I think there are certainly some people, particularly in uh, places like New York and California, the other Kentucky, the bigger states that haven't been able to run, um, are probably looking at this like, hey, you know, if we had to shut down, you guys should too. But at the same time, I think all, all the folks in the horse player community just want to keep this stuff going. This is Champin' at the Bit with Miles Cottom. Miles, before we get on to the gambling stuff, um, is are, are the horses that would be running, let's say, in the Kentucky Derby, you know, these horses really who have one year to do this, are they going to these other tracks now or have they basically shut it down? The really the primo like triple crown threats and all and all those horses. Sure. Yeah. The cream of the crop, the, the folks that you're thinking these guys would be in the Derby on Saturday or they're the, the best three year old horses out there. Yeah, they're still running. Most of their trainers have shipped them in. Uh, largely to Oaklawn Park. Uh, you, you know, there are a number of Bob Baffert's horses coming in, uh, you know, Todd Pletcher, Bill Mott, Brad Cox. These guys are running their best horses. Um, in, in other words, and they're doing these races, sorry to interrupt, but they're doing these races that they wouldn't have done because of the lack of a Kentucky Derby or, or Triple Crown races. Right. So, well, the Arkansas Derby always gets run. It's usually about two, two to three weeks before the Kentucky Derby. And okay. it's the last okay. major prep race. Um, to get horses ready for and into qualified for the Derby, the Kentucky Derby. And so all they did this year was push back the Arkansas Derby just a little bit because with nobody else racing on the first Saturday in May, they have that that primo calendar date and they were able to um, just push back their race and say, hey, you know what, everybody come, you know, come to this one and the horses have followed. All right, this is The Pony Show with Miles Cottom. Miles, uh, you and the Slack crew, for those who don't know, the Slack crew, we got 70 people in an online chat. Anybody is welcome. You're certainly, if you're listening to this, welcome. You guys have a little channel for, for betting on the horse races. Um, if you want to bet, if you want to gamble, and I believe me, I've been tempted because you guys have had some pretty, uh, pretty big group wins. Uh, how, what's the best way now in the U.S. to, to gamble online? Sure. So there are still a number of states where it's not legal to bet on horses. Uh, but I think a majority of the states now, particularly, you know, if there's a horse track in your state, uh, they've largely got uh, legalized online horse betting. And uh, there are a few apps you can use. You know, Twin Spires is a native app that's run by the folks at Churchill Downs. Okay. Uh, 
TVG is an app uh, that, that accompanies a uh, – they've got a horse channel as well that is attached to some cable packages or you can get it on your, you know, uh, Amazon Fire Stick or Apple TV, stuff like that. Um, and then First Bet is one sponsored by uh, Express Bet, and I believe that's the um, – uh, folks out of Florida. And so uh, there are still a number of different ways out there. Those are the three uh, major ones that allow the paramutual betting, which is not, you know, your fixed odds like the Bovada or bet online type sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are the actual paramutual pools that uh, take into account all the money that's been bet on the race by the, by everyone who is betting. And so um, that's your traditional horse betting. Those apps uh, and websites will allow you, you know, if it's legal in your state will allow you to, um, you know, freely deposit money, wager on the races, withdrawal if you need to. Um, and, you know, just just in the last, I think, three weeks, we've given out somewhere in the neighborhood of, of you know, $4,000, $3,500 in winnings um, just on our, our little Slack channel there. That's unbelievable. Uh, and are these horses, we're in sort of um, uncharted territory right now. Are these horses juicing, you think? I mean, more than before? You know, the uh, the use of performance enhancing drugs in horse racing is is rapidly coming under fire. Um, You know, you've had some trainers recently get busted for this. Um, You know, you've had some horses, particularly some famous, uh, even triple crown winning horses uh, that have recently come under suspicion for having doped in the past. Um, California is really trying to take the lead on this. They have banned the use of the drug Lasix uh, from all two year olds this year. And, uh, you know, so they're going to try that out. You know, they've run a couple of big races in the last six months where horses are not allowed to use the Lasix drug. Um, and so, you know, it's it's one of those things where, it, yeah, it, it's probably happening out there. And as much as everybody tries to avoid it, um, you know, I think it's happening in horse racing just the same as it's happening in, um, you know, baseball or football or, or anywhere else where there's a prime uh, put on performance all right this is out to pasture with miles cottom the horse talk and miles i'm going now, to now say Shane, uh-huh. that's about the fourth or fifth different segment you name you've used for this segment what are we doing here oh no i don't i don't think that's true i think it's been out to pasture the, from the beginning um okay it's interesting you say that i'll go back and check for sure but i'm pretty sure it's been the same throughout um but to finish up here miles uh I'm going to Saratoga this weekend. This has been fun. It's gotten me excited. I used to go to the track as a kid all the time. Uh, obviously, there's no races there right now, but I may go stare forlornly at the track. Um, but what I want to end with you, we are recording this on a Thursday, and it's going to be running on a Tuesday or a Monday. So there's races this weekend. Tell us a little bit about those. I think you've hit it on a bit already. And maybe give a pick. And if the pick is right, we'll just leave it, and we'll give you all the credit. And if the pick turns out wrong, we'll dub your voice in a really obvious way to, to make it the right pick. Uh, Bob Baffert's three-year-old charlatan. And Bob Baffert's horse, Nadal. <laughs> all right, Miles Cotton, unbelievable predictions. Great job. Uh, and I just want to say there was no audio editing there, no dubbing, nothing like that. Uh, you would have been able to hear the awkwardness uh, if that were the case. So thanks again, Miles, and I'm sure we will talk before long. Segment break. All right. I am delighted to be joined by my friend Brandon Gardner, as promised now, to talk a little bit about The Last Dance. Brandon, how's it going? Hi, I'm good. I'm glad to uh, be able to talk about this. Yeah, and I think you and I have spoken for a minimum of an hour uh, after these episodes on Sunday. So I figured, hey, let's do it for a podcast this time. Exactly. There's very little else to talk about in the world of sports. 
No, uh, there's not. It's one of the few uh, collective viewing experiences we've had. And so last night was episode five and six, and it covered a lot. It covered the the dream team in Barcelona. It covered Jordan's third championship against the Suns. Um, but one of the main things is it talked about Jordan's um, sort of uh, extremely apolitical nature as a basketball player. Um, and so if it's cool with you, Brandon, I thought we'd listen to a clip here. It's about a minute long. Uh, it has a few people, including Jordan himself, sort of talking about this issue. Uh, I think it might be a good place to start. Everybody in the world respects Muhammad Ali. You know why? Because he stood for something. He stood for something even if it meant sacrificing a payday. We respect that. Ultimately, Michael Jordan may be forgotten. Muhammad Ali won't be forgotten. I do commend Muhammad Ali for standing up for what he believed in, but I never thought of myself as an activist. I thought of myself as a basketball player. I wasn't a politician when I was playing my sport. You know, I was focused on my craft. Was that selfish? Probably. But that was my that was my energy. That's where my energy was. I'll be honest that it when it was reported that Michael said, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too. Uh, you know, for somebody who was at that time preparing for a career in civil rights law and in public life and knowing what Jesse Helms stood for, you would have wanted to see Michael push harder on that. On the other hand, he was still trying to figure out how am I managing uh, this image that has been created around me. Um, and, and how do I live up to it? Oh, yeah. So what do you make of that, Brandon? We heard from Nathan McCall of The Washington Post. Then you heard Michael Jordan, obviously, uh, and then Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. My first thought that I, that I don't think I actually thought this when I was originally watching it, but I was trying to think, well, who were the politically active uh, superstar athletes of the 90s? I can't think of any off the top of my, my head. And it's interesting where it's easy to think in the 60s, there's Muhammad Ali, but Bill Russell also was really political, and as was Jim Brown. Um, so right. part of me is like, I wonder how much of it was their eras, where where the the late '60s was in general just a time where activism was seemed like a bigger part of of society. Uh, and by the '90s, um, that wasn't as as prevalent. I, that's one thing. Like in, in defense of him, that's one thing. I was like, I guess I can't think of anyone else who was who was who was doing it, who was sort of sacrificing. Um, potential uh, brand by by being political. Yeah, and you know, my impression of Jordan too was that he really didn't care about this stuff. Like, I, I didn't get the sense from him that right. he had these strong opinions that he was muting uh, in favor of being right. like a commercial product. I, I generally think like he had that clip where he was like, "Yeah, my mom wanted me to get involved with it," but I'm like, "I don't know anything about it." So here, you have some money, but he wasn't like this wasn't something he was dying to say, and Nike was muzzling him or anything. Yes. And generally, it seems like part of what we love about him is his single mindedness towards basketball, um, where he's not even like like I think a lot of athletes have gotten um, flack for other interests, oftentimes, especially if it's like entertainment things where people give them a hard time if they have a rap album or in movies. And we say, like, you should just be focused on basketball. Um, and Michael truly seems to have only been focused on, on basketball and, and competition. Yeah, now, I, I, one thing that kind of irritated me a little bit about that clip, like, I thought Nathan McCall was the 
sort of like the most um, critical anyone has been of Jordan in this documentary. And famously, like Jordan right. kind of had to okay using this, um, all this footage from 98. So the documentary couldn't have happened without his say. So nobody knows exactly how much control he had over it. Um, but it, the thing is probably a lot, like he probably had say on last cut and the way ESPN dances exactly. around it, uh, makes it seem even more, I, you probably saw Brandon Ken Burns, um, on the wall street journal said that, you know, he was very critical, basically said, this isn't journalism. This is not how I would deal with history. I wouldn't have accepted this job. Um, and so the Obama thing, I thought perfectly encapsulated that where it's the most mild criticism followed by a, well, yeah, but you know, he's also trying to deal with his own thing. It, it was like, Almost like they were mm -hmm. trying to tick off the box of like objectivity, but without actually kind of like delving into anything super critical. Yeah, I mean, I at the same time, it's like I'm I'm sure that Obama's quote in particular wasn't um, like I don't think it was something where he felt the pressure of ESPN to to say something a certain way. I think generally speaking, he sort of has that sort of uh, approach. Um, so, so I don't think uh, necessarily uh, he would have said anything differently. Um, I, I do think there's uh, it, obviously it's a factor that that Jordan uh, that no part of the documentary would have been released without at least his approval. Right. Um, I'm sure there are things that he doesn't love that they're covering, but sort of feels that that they can't completely skip over them. So we might as well address them. Yeah, you know, one thing I did notice is that there's been really nothing so far uh, beyond a couple of bleak references to his wife or kids at all. Uh, and I wonder. I was if, thinking that too. Yeah, I wonder if that was part of the deal. Yeah, and I'm curious. It's possible that it might come out um, at least something at uh, at um, uh, his uh, his children and um, what he was like in that capacity. I guess you could you could say that there was an argument or there could be an argument maybe that that doesn't that's not part of this that this the focus of this documentary specifically about this right, season right. you might not need to know his home life um whereas like his public image obviously was a factor even on the court right they talk a lot about how distracting it was when um reporters are going after his gambling or going right, after right, the right. fact that he's not politically involved yeah, like you, you couldn't do this documentary without getting, you know, mocked if you totally ignored the gambling stuff or the political stuff. However, yeah, you can probably get away with not doing like the extramarital affairs, which I remember reading about even in the 90s. Like, I think it was like a pretty common thing. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's funny. It's like, I, I think it definitely was a pretty common thing, but my memory of it is more that I, I heard more about it afterwards, that it was something that it was sort of a gentleman's agreement thing where that kind of thing wasn't reported at the time. Yeah, I, you know, my memory is not like perfect, so <laughs> I definitely don't want to stand by that. But I do, I do have a memory of like hearing about it then, um, it, like kind of in relation to the whole like going to baseball thing, the gambling problems, and all that. Um, one thing, yeah, closely tied to that, which was obviously a huge thing yesterday, the politics and the gambling. With the gambling, it was really interesting. Um, like Andrea Kramer at one point had this very solemn, uh, this very solemn thing that. I think was actually repeated two or three times where she was like, it didn't hurt him on the basketball court, but it was a major hit to his reputation. And I don't know. I, <laughs> I kind of like, no, it wasn't not really. <laughs> like, like I wonder like, it's did anybody actually yeah. give a shit? Well, someone else said that too. It's like, it didn't hurt like uh, his fandom. It didn't hear, hurt his sponsorship. It hurt his reputation. And I, I guess the only 
way in which it maybe did that is for people who are looking for a reason to dislike him or to be to right. criticize him, it gave them something to, to, to focus on. Um, because up until then, it's like you, it's it's very hard to be critical of his basketball. Although I guess the old criticism was um, he's a one man show who can't win it all, right. and then he wins it all, and so they they find another thing. Yeah, and I, I think it, it's also like tying back into the political. The one thing this documentary really tries hard to do, and I think succeeds, is to show the crazy amount of pressure and the constant attention he has from the media yeah, and fans. Miserable. And, yeah. And fans does seem miserable. And then like, again, going back to the political, it's like, Oh my God, imagine if you took a stance on something political, how this thing that is already completely out of control. And that pretty much seems to have driven him yes. from basketball twice. Uh, yeah. Just imagine like how it would ratchet up if he was like, Hey, the Iraq war, like, <laughs> like the Persian Gulf war was bullshit or whatever. Or yeah. if he, or if he backed Harvey Gann or whatever it would be. And there is something they said about how the competition that he brought to basketball to a certain degree, he brought that to his sponsorships and that he was as competitive sort of with Nike being yes. successful mm-hmm. as the bulls were. So there's something to that too, where I could see him thinking to a certain extent, it's like, well, I'm not going to, you know, I want Nike to beat Reebok and Adidas um, so I'm not going to do anything to threaten that. Um, and that it's in a weird way tied to the same competition that, that drove everything he did. Yeah. Which is, I'm sure a dream for Nike to have somebody who sort of internalizes oh, yeah. their own like corporate wars against Reebok and, and everybody. Um, yeah, he, in the, there was a footage from Barcelona right before he covered up his logo with the American flag where he called like, I think it was the head of Reebok. He called him a shithead or something like that in the car. Yeah. And, uh, and like the pure calculation, I think it's really like the only political act I've seen Michael Jordan do is cover it with the American flag and purely like manipulative in a way of like so smart. Yeah, they can't bitch if it's the American flag. Yeah. <laughs> so he had like this like this remote awareness of politics, but the only time he ever used it was sort of to like uh, to give like the finger to Reebok. Yeah, and that was something I didn't re- really remember. But then as soon as I saw him draped in the flag. I definitely remembered that image, that that was definitely something I saw as a kid and, mm-hmm. and didn't see anything in it other than, than sort of like extreme patriotism. Yeah, I don't I don't remember it contemporaneously at all. But uh, when they played the clip, I, I think it was actually Marv Albert. I'm not sure 100 percent, but whoever the announcer was said uh, Michael Jordan has the flag draped over his shoulder, not entirely for patriotic reasons. Right. So whoever it was, like it was known even at the time exactly what he was doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I guess that's a good transition into the, the Olympic stuff, which probably like other than the piston stuff, maybe was my favorite so far. Uh, everything from the Monte Carlo practice to their weird, like acts of vengeance on Tony Kukoc. Um, right. What stood out to you about that stuff? Um, well, the Tony Kukoc stuff for sure. I was sort of looking forward to them covering, um, Tony Kukoc more, and I hope he still gets a little bit more um, play in the, in the series. Uh, cause I do think he's sort of an undervalued uh, member of that, that second run of, uh, championships. Um, but just that, just about how one thing that I hadn't thought of and speaking about, I for which reporter speaking to it was Jordan and Pippen sort of underestimating crew coaches, uh, mental toughness. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of talking about, here's like a guy who grew up in, in a country in the midst of like a civil war. And I was like, oh, yeah. And, it's, and it sort of made me think about a lot of those European players, and especially in the 90s, they had this reputation for being soft, um, whereas they came from, like, very, very tough backgrounds. 
Um, and maybe it's like I, I could see where uh, African-American players would sort of see uh, white Americans and, and see them as soft because they're, they're not dealing with, with racism. Yeah. But then it's like if you grew up in the former Yugoslavia. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're not exactly a posh like country club yeah. kid. Yeah. Uh, pretty tough life. Uh, and so there is something to like that I kind of love about like and I'm sort of cheering for Tony that he has like an OK game in the finals, mm-hmm. even against a dream team that he bounces back and is like, I'm not like another person. You could see it ruining them where I've been humiliated um, and on such a public stage. But I, I sort of love that he even now doesn't even talk about it emotionally. He's just like, yeah, I didn't even know what was going on. I just thought that's what it was like. Yeah. And yeah. And he, you know, yeah, I think the most he said was like, I certainly didn't expect that level of intensity to have somebody basically yes. draped over me all that's game. Right. But it's funny because, you know, they both did it. And Scottie Pippen actually was the one who remarked after the game that, you know, he wasn't good enough to play in the NBA. And so you could tell it was like very personal for both. But I almost forgave Scottie Pippen more because, again, Scottie comes from an incredibly rough background. Uh, and Kukoc, mm-hmm. you know, Kukoc does come from Yugoslavia, but probably his parents had money and all that stuff. Like, it doesn't seem like he was you know, like a, a hard scrabble kid. It's just that the, cir- yeah, the geopolitical yeah. circumstances were miserable for him. And so he was tough in that sense. But Pippen also was being screwed by Jerry Krause. And so there was this personal element mm-hmm. to it. So you're like, okay, I can get how he does that. But it really like, for me, it showcased how pathological Jordan is even more because he kind of like drove Pippen along this thing. Cause he doesn't like Krause either. He drove him along this thing. Uh, he was equally intense in the game and just in the pure thing of wanting to humiliate Krause because he didn't like him. And then after the game, he does this thing where they say, hey, Scotty said he couldn't play in the NBA. And Jordan goes, oh, that's probably a little like, you know, he plays the good guy. Uh, And it's Mm -hmm. like, man, you're so vicious. Like, I I find Jordan so magnetic. Yeah, go ahead. I I think what he's done his whole life and definitely whole playing career is just give himself psychological motivation to play at his most. And if you're, you really know you're not really facing that much competition, even against the, the second best team, mm-hmm. which is Croatia. Part of me thinks it's just that it's like a psychological game. He's playing himself like a reason to get up for this is like, well, we're going to, this is going to be the thing. Otherwise it's boring to him. Yeah. And that kind of made me like, it's hard for me not to like Jordan. There's just something about like the, character of him that is just irresistible mm-hmm. so it's like you cannot like him but it doesn't matter he's a force of nature you know what i mean and that that's yes. attractive in its way but these little moments make me not like him as much because it's like look you didn't really need to do this for croatia <laughs> you were gonna win no matter what right. like u.s was gonna win the gold um, medal yeah i i mean i definitely understand that I, most of the time i think about it in terms of like i probably wouldn't want to be around him most of the time yeah Although you do see people and we'll, we'll talk about that security guard he plays that like quarters game with that seemed to be like getting along with him fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's such a great character and like the history of basketball that, that you wouldn't really want to change him. And then the other thing is it's like one of the things that's notable about him that you could compare to other superstars is he, and people say this all the time, it could be a regular season game where they're playing um, some terrible team and he's going for it. Like, he didn't ever take the foot off the gas. Right, right. And I think he kind of had to do these things in order to play like that all the time. Uh, like, at least there's, like, a, a connection you can make between those two things of, yes, he was constantly playing these, like, weird psychological games with himself mm-hmm. um, that involved other people, even if they didn't know it. 
Um, but the result was he's this like supremely talented person who also played with maximum effort um, every single game, no matter what. Yeah, no, you're and you're completely right. And the also, you know, I was comparing Kukoc to Marley because it was there was a similar dynamic there where it was somebody that Kraus really like would talk up nonstop in his like kind of idiotic way um, and piss everybody yeah. off. And like, uh, can I talk about that quick? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's funny because with Kraus or Kraus, it does seem like he he genuinely was like a pretty smart uh, general manager as far yep. as. Like, uh, building a team, Decent right? Like scout most too. of the decisions he made were great, but it's so funny how you can be smart on that side, but lack like a certain social intelligence. Like there's something to him talking about Kukoc over and over and over again, or talking about Dan Marley. That's like, why are you doing this? You have to understand that this is annoying people around you. Yeah. Um, why? Like, is it like, are you playing your side of the, 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 the sort of game where you're you're sort of trying to make them feel small because you feel small or, or what? Cause it's so for him counterproductive. It's like you're, you're creating enemies. And, and the thing is too, it's like, it's one thing. Okay. If you want to take the attitude that the way to do your job as a general manager is to devalue the players as much as possible so that you're not spending too much money on them. Like if you're going to take a completely business oriented side of it, which I think mm-hmm. in some ways he does, then you can't also want to ride the bus with them and be their friends, right. which is like right. the thing that he does. And, and like you said, it's completely like counterproductive to him. It, it results in predictably everybody just like ragging on him all the time. Jordan basically verbally abusing him. Scotty Pippen later at 98 blowing up on him. Yeah. It's crazy. Like the lack of personal skills Krauss has, I think you nailed it like a desperate need to belong, but also like this warring thing where he is a good GM and a pretty smart guy and a good scout and can't help, like just can't help himself from like getting in these miserable situations. I, it's yeah. It, I find him very like annoying as a character in some ways. Yeah. Cause you just so want to shake him for recognition. Yeah. Yeah. And we were talking before we started recording of, um, famously in the first episode, they had the thing where in 98, he's talking about how the organization is the most important thing, not the players, Right. but even organizations win championships. Exactly. But even in 93 and in, in last night's episode, we see he's, he's saying similar things. It's not quite to the same level, but he's getting there saying that like, oh, yeah, yeah, the players are good, but oh man, this organization, one of the best organizations is like right down to the trainer or the ball boy or something. It's right. like, Oh, fuck off. I know it's so it's so there's something great about how unaware he is of, of how um, clear his insecurities are, where obviously the the most articles are being written about Michael. Yeah. And then after Michael, it's Phil Jackson and then the rest of the team. And then there are no articles being written about Jerry Krause. And you can tell that that eats him up. It does. He hates it. Um, I got a kick out of when Sam Smith wrote his book, The Jordan Rules, which even in David Halberstam's book, he kind of Halberstam, who typically is not one for like criticizing other journalists. He did say like it was based largely on interviews with Horace Grant and like somewhat inaccurate <laughs> or whatever. But yeah. how how Krauss went into Phil Jackson's office and insisted on reading 41 different passages that he had highlighted for, yeah. like for, like Phil Jackson to get like, what is Phil Jackson going to do? Like, what, what the hell are you supposed to do there? It's so... It's so insanely insecure for a man with so much power and money. Right, exactly. Um, and yeah, the only thing I was going to say before to your point was like, 
like we are dealing with basketball still. So talking about like Marley and Kukoc, where Jordan is on this revenge mission for Kraus, it's still just basketball. He's he's allowed to play hard defense, right? He's not. Right. So it's like right. I can dislike him for kind of trying to humiliate them, but in the end, I mean, he's playing by the rules. You know, it's I. Yeah, it's, he's just doing yeah. His he thing. doesn't have a reputation as a as a dirty player. No, no one ever says that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I think the one thing I did want to talk to you about that uh, that killed me is just in very brief cameos. Um, it's not easy to steal a scene from Michael Jordan, but Charles Barkley like cracked me up every single time he appeared yeah. on TV. Um, uh, especially that era where he's, you get his humor and how uh, smart he is, but he doesn't have the same like uh, polish he has from being on TV as long as he's been on TV now. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's great. And especially when it's like there's emotion attached to it. We, we talked about when he has that press conference, we, he says that uh, Chicago should take all that shit off their windows. <laughs> it's both funny and, and, and it's great how um, you really see, oh, he was mad about that. Yeah, and it was. But his delivery is great. And um, yeah, the other thing that kind of touches on your point Today, if you see him on like inside the NBA, there's a softness to him almost of yeah. there's more polish, but also he's like an older fat guy. And so it's right. like and he kind of has that like lazy sort of um, speech pattern. Then he was like sharp as shit. Like you can see like the power behind Charles Barkley. And oh, it, yeah. it's awesome. Like it was awesome to see that. And there was um, the scene in Barcelona where he's walking with Michael Jordan and kind of like busting his chops a little bit uh -huh. singing the I Like Mike song. It's like, oh, yeah, I think also along with like magic, he was like one of the few guys who could like really be in there with Michael Jordan and kind of give him shit. And, and Jordan liked him. You know what I mean? Like or he, he was on Jordan's level and Jordan knew it to some degree. Yeah. Although I forget who it was. It may have been Jeff Van Gundy. Someone has insinuated that he befriended Barkley purposely in that in that Barcelona uh, um, Olympics because he knew that he was a rival and it was like a psychological thing. Yeah, that, that definitely <laughs> wouldn't surprise me with Michael Jordan. Um, yeah, and then the other thing, uh, Kobe Bryant. is uh, It's just yeah. so strange. So strange to see him there and to think like that he's, you know, that he's no longer alive. It's just bizarre. Yeah, it's so, it, it was one of the most shocking deaths ever. And, and everything that's happened with, with COVID almost makes it feel like it happened longer ago than it did yeah it's yeah, so recent point. um yeah and i i don't know i i kind of got the sense that maybe they might have changed a little bit of the documentary because i had heard that he was like involved quite a lot and the narrative of that all-star game was just that oh yeah they had like a good clash together jordan got a couple points and mm -hmm. but then like befriended him after and liked kobe whereas i don't know i i just feel like maybe if he it I don't know. Maybe if he was still alive, the narrative would have been like everything else where it's like Jordan humiliates somebody. <laughs> or, well, or, yeah. the director said that that part had already been edited, that the only thing that they oh. added to that was just the in memory of at the very beginning. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um, my friend, because you do get like you do get a little bit pregame of of the other thing that's so funny to me is it's the, the 98 All-Star game. So it's, I don't know, Jordan's been in probably 15 of them at this point. Right. But he's still, like, you can see that his competitive juices are going a little bit just from the perceived cockiness of Kobe. Um, yeah, the pre-talk in the locker room. like, just laughing it off, yeah. Yeah, in the locker room when he's like, yeah, just, there's, such a, there's such a sharp 
edge to everything Jordan says in those competitive moments that it almost like you can see it making other people uncomfortable. Even as- I was just going to say that, yeah. Especially the, these guys who don't really know, they are not normally in his locker room. They're not his teammates. They're like, okay, like <laughs> nervously laughing. Yeah, yeah. I um, One thing that really cracked me up, they showed the famous Monte Carlo practice in, in Barcelona, which mm-hmm. is a really great story. It's too bad they didn't have Coach K on because he, in Halberstam's book, had some great quotes about that. Basically, Coach K had volunteered to be an assistant so he wouldn't have to referee it because he knew it was going to be like really tense and crazy. Um, And he was coaching Magic Johnson's team. And when Jordan was on the line at the end, Coach K said something like to his team, like plenty of time left, guys, or something. And apparently Jordan slammed the ball and goes, (laughs) there's no fucking time left. There's no fucking time left. Right. so yeah, it's just I've always thought that was an awesome story, but it, really funny to me after when they're all sitting there and it's very clear that shit is so tense and Jordan goes like, how'd you like that whipping that we just put on you or something? And someone there goes, come on now, come on now, like immediately trying to squash it because right. it's like such a powder keg in that moment, but Jordan can't resist just like getting that like hit in there. Yeah, I mean, that's, and it's so interesting that so many of those players sort of talk about like, I think Magic's a- uh, that that was the greatest game I was ever involved in. Yeah. Um, and talent wise, it must have been. It's it's sort of insane, especially because like with All Star games, no one's ever going full tilt, and you could tell in this one was was trying to win. Either Michael was making his team or, or, or Magic was making his team um, play as play as as hard as they could. Yeah, I mean, all you had to see was uh, Magic throwing the ball in the stands like that. I mean, that was that yeah. pretty much said it all. Like these guys were like intense as hell. And I guess that's the moment people talk about too, where um, if it hadn't been passed already, that's where the mantle was sort of passed, where where Jordan is now. He's the the top dog. Yeah, yeah, and I thought it was interesting, even in the bus afterward, like it was Magic who had to break the tension. Like Jordan, Jordan wasn't going to yeah. be the one to do it. He basically had to. I think the comment was, "Oh, I guess we shouldn't have pissed him off or something." And it was very. Right. It's almost like a submissive act in a way of like, yeah, I'm gonna like lower myself before you to end this tension and to recognize kind of like what's happening. But Jordan, like, such the obvious like alpha or whatever you want to call it, that I guess he kind of felt like he had to. Um, yeah, and who knows what the rest of that that Olympics would have been like if Magic hadn't been willing to do that. Yeah, totally. Well, my friend, uh, I've kept you quite a while. Thank you very much for joining me on this. And uh, as usual, a pleasure to talk to you about all things Jordan and NBA. Uh, Yeah, thanks. I'm always willing. Segment break. I swore I wasn't going to do it, but it is time for a take. I can't help it. Earlier today, uh, news came out that Louisville uh, was the subject of a a number of allegations from the NCAA about improper benefits. Uh, Now, this was based on and prompted by an FBI investigation into college basketball. The NCAA is responding with all these allegations. Louisville, I think, is the seventh team at this point. Uh, Kansas, NC State, Oklahoma State, South Carolina, TCU, and USC are also included. And there are, are probably a handful of other schools to come. So all of these allegations against all of the schools, there's sort of a broad range. There's different levels and all that other stuff, but they all come down to recruiting. Did you give benefits to these players? Did you give benefits to people who can help you get those players, whether that's boosters or AAU coaches or, you know, shoe company representative, whatever it may be. Uh, all of it comes down to trying to get the best players to come and, and the way that these schools try to do that, which are against the NCAA's rules. So know that, first of all, all about recruiting, nothing else. All right. Second of all, 
let's just revisit the NCAA system we know so well. It is a multi-million dollar business when it comes to football and basketball, the revenue generating sports, and it's run by millionaire coaches uh, who want to succeed in what is a very, very high pressure business. So they do everything they can to recruit the best workers, i.e. players for their teams, i.e. the company. All right. So that is a perfect parallel to any business in a capitalist economy or even a meritocratic economy. Uh, the parallels are perfect until you get to money, of course. All right. In a normal world, you would lure the best players with money. That would be the number one thing you could use to get them to come to your team. Why not? You're making a shit ton of money, and that's the way things work in an economy. Instead, the NCAA has perpetuated over decades, which is, to my mind, one of the greatest corporate frauds in history by not paying its workers. And, okay, they use a dual sort of camouflage agents here. The first one they do is amateurism, this notion that there is something holier or righteous above all in playing for free, the amateur athlete uh, at these colleges. And the second thing they use is free education. Oh, yeah, hey, we're compensating them. Yeah, they get free books. They get uh, a free college degree if they want it, uh, you know, a dorm that they can stay in. So these two things work to disguise what is nakedly a system of indentured servitude where the people who are most responsible for the incredible amount of profit that these people make with the players, uh, they see exactly none of that money. The money rains down everywhere. They see none of it. So, okay, the NCAA, the coaches, the universities have all made millions. But when you set up a system where uh, more profits come from better results and those results depend heavily to the point of exclusively on how well you recruit, what the hell do you expect except cheating? You think a bunch of coaches are going to get together and agree that, hey, we'll all just go to, uh, to visit these kids' houses, we'll give our best spiel and may the best spiel win. Hell no. With that much money at stake, they are going to cheat. They have always cheated. John Wooden was a cheater at UCLA. They're always going to cheat. It is the nature of business to seek higher profits no matter what. And it's insanely hypocritical to me that the NCAA can simultaneously run a system where cheating is both incentivized and inevitable, and then they have the gall to punish the cheaters, all right? And it's arbitrary, by the way. They're catching a fraction of the people who do it. Everybody does it. They're catching a fraction of them. Uh, I, I wrote earlier today, it's like teaching a group of rats to run through a maze to eat a food pellet, and then you electrocute every third rat. You know, no rhyme or reason, just every third rat gets uh, electrocuted. So the NCAA, with this system, they bulldozed any notion of moral high ground by the very fact of their existence, but they seem to have no sense of shame when they sit in judgment of the people who are doing what they have been set up to do to the people who are dancing to their tune. All right, so I hate the NCAA. That's no secret. To me, they're self-righteous, grandstanding pigs, uh, and I'm going to dance a gleeful two-step when they go under, and I hope every single one of these schools and Rick Pitino and everybody else, uh, I hope they get off scot-free. Last point I want to make, any coach or booster who pays either high school prospects or gives benefits to college kids, uh, you know, these college stars who are going to be in the NBA one day, um, especially now in the one-and-done era where the basketball players are more or less, if you're an American, you're more or less forced to play uh, one year at a college. That may change soon, but that's the system right now. Anybody who pays these kids or gives them benefits is doing a good thing. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're not doing it for selfish reasons. They almost definitely are. It's very selfish in its nature, okay? They want to succeed more. They want more players to come to them. They want to make more money, okay? It's all about personal gain. However, the only justice in this whole situation, when you really look at the broad picture, the only justice is for these heaps of money that are raining down on everybody. A lot of that should be going to the kids because they're the only ones who matter. They're the only reason we tune in. 
is these players. They should be getting the money. So when a coach or a booster or a, a shoe rep, whoever it may be, whoever gives these kids money, they are moving us closer toward justice, and they deserve praise for that. Propaganda of the NCAA says they are violating amateurism. These are bad, corrupt, evil people. And that seems to be the general reaction of the sports world. Uh, that needs to change. These people are doing a good thing, even if it's for the wrong reasons, uh, and they are combating an unfair system. So they are not the demons. If you're going to demonize anybody, and you should demonize the NCAA, they're the ones who deserve it. Segment break! All right, okay, we're done with that. This is it. We're over. Enough episode coming to an end. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, you can listen on iTunes, on Spotify, Google Podcasts. I think there's a number of other places. We're going to put it up and more. Hey, if you like the content, check out the Apocalypse Sports Network. $3 a month. Go to apocalypsesports.net to see what the daily blogs are like. You get these podcasts. Make sure you check out last week's with Tim Layden. On Thursday, we're going to be running an interview with Will Leach, founder of Deadspin.com. That's going to be awesome. So yeah, hey, so much to be excited about. If you liked it, Tell somebody else. Tell a friend. Send it to them. It's free for now. A lot of it's free. All right. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. Stay safe. And I love you from the bottom of my heart. Goodbye.